We've started a series looking at 1 Peter. And the reason we're looking at 1 Peter is because of what we just sang. 1 Peter is a letter about what it means to live by faith and not by sight. Calling it a living hope. And that title comes from verse 3 of chapter 1, and it captures the perspective that Peter wants us to have. Perspective is so incredibly important. Um, Mindset. Uh, Stephen Covey, the management guru, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, would talk about a mindset, a win-win mindset. That if you have... That if you have a fixed or a closed mindset, then that impacts the way that you see all of life, right? Then everything is fixed, everything is closed, and there's no, uh, there's no way out, there's no way up. Versus an open or abundance mindset that always sees the win. And that is really what Peter is after. He wants us to have the right view of things. That's what he's doing in chapters uh, three, excuse me, in chapter one, verses three through twelve, and we talked about that last week. Today, I want to revisit uh, verses ten through twelve because there's a lot there that I think would be important for us to talk about. And so, if you uh, have a Bible, turn with me to First Peter. Uh, if you are using the the church Bible there that's in the chair, that should be page one thousand and fourteen. If I'm wrong, just look in the table of contents. You'll find it. It's towards the back of the Bible. Let's give our attention to God's holy word. Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. All flesh is like Grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Father, as we just sang, we pray that you would speak. And that the truth of your word would prevail over unbelief. All the forms of unbelief that are nestled deep in our hearts, Lord, we pray that you would that you would shine the light of your truth into those places, that you would lance those boils, that you would bring light into dark places so that we would be a people of hope and joy. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever seen the uh, the custodian? Who carries the big key ring on his belt? Um, you know, when you're when you're responsible for a large facility, whether that's a hospital or a school or a church, 
right? That's a lot of doors, and that's a lot of locks. And so you need the guy who has all, who has all the keys, because for some reason, all the locks don't match all the keys. So you need to have lots of keys. Um, I remember I worked at a, a summer camp in my, uh, when I was in college, and one of our board members, so the, this was at a camp near Atlanta, and this guy's name was Charlie, and for some reason, he made it his mission. I, I came into the office one day, and we had several buildings on campus with several doors and several locks, uh, and I came into our, our office one day, and, and he had a box of keys, and it was his mission to find out what all those keys went to. Yep. That's right. Uh, and so, so he took his box because he was going to label them all and put them all in a, you know, in a, in a cabinet and hang them up so that they were in all the right keys. To all the, and if you're ever looking for a key, you could go to the cabinet and find it. And for some reason, and, you know, thank God for people like this. The world needs people like this. Um, he was going to do that. He was going to go around the entire camp with that box of keys. And he was going to turn one in every single lock. And you can imagine the relief that he would feel uh, when he would actually find a key that worked, you know, and you've been there, right? When you've tried a key several times in a door, or you, maybe you've tried several keys in a door and none of them work. And then all of a sudden you turn, you find the one that does work and it turns and you kind of breathe that sigh of relief. Well, Peter is telling us that the Bible can be like that to us, right? That it's kind of like a locked door, that it's a, it's a book that's hard for us to understand, right? It's, um, it's, centuries it's, it's actually millennia old right it comes from different culture it comes from different language it comes from a different worldview and so it's a book that we can't just come straight to and open up and understand right we need some we need a key that helps us understand it and what peter tells us in this passage is that the gospel that is the good news about Jesus. So around here, when we say that word gospel, what we mean is the good news about Jesus. What Jesus has accomplished through his life and death and resurrection. That's the gospel. Peter says that the gospel is the key that unlocks the door of the Bible. The gospel helps us understand what the Bible is about. And not only that, but also our lives. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, how the gospel helps us understand the Bible and our lives. And hopefully we'll see how that fits into Peter's purpose in this letter as well in encouraging people. Uh, so first, how the gospel helps us understand the Bible. Now, if you weren't here with us last week, I want to give you just a little bit of context, what Peter has said so far, right? Uh, he is describing in this opening section... Uh, the hope that people have in Jesus. And the reason he's doing that is because he is writing to Jesus' followers in what we would be modern-day Turkey, and they have, uh, in following Jesus, they have been marginalized by their communities. They have been, they, they have been persecuted. Now, not, not what we call, like, hard persecution, not like government-sanctioned or legislated persecution. You could call this... Soft persecution, but not that it feels soft, right, to be kicked out of your home. And not that it feels soft for friends who used to speak to you to no longer speak to you. That's what's going on. These people have decided to follow Jesus, and they have been ostracized by their communities because of it. And so Peter is writing to encourage them. That's what this whole letter is about. In this opening section, he begins by talking about their future hope. 
But they have been given an inheritance that cannot be taken away or lost, right? It's secured through Jesus. And Peter calls this a salvation that is waiting to be revealed in the last time. And it's not only a future hope, but it also leads to a present joy. He says, in this hope you rejoice even though you're grieved by various trials. So he's saying that that hope for the future spills backwards into the present. And because it does, Christians can rejoice even as they are oppressed, even as they are grieved by various trials. Elliot Clark, in his book, Evangelism is Exile, says this. This is the ground of Christian joy, a living hope. In a world of seemingly unending shame, opposition, struggle, weakness, affliction, and persecution, the certainty of future glory is the unstoppable heartbeat of our enduring hope. I wonder, when you speak to others, or when you post online, do you convey hope or fear, anger or joy? Peter is saying that those who are in Christ ought to be preeminently people of hope and joy, not fear and anger. Even as we respond to trials, even severe trials, Peter calls us to be people of joy. And then he says this in verse 10. So that's all kind of the context leading up to verse 10. He says, about this salvation, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So what he says is, about this future hope, It was actually prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. And when he talks about the prophets of the Old Testament, he's actually referring to the whole Old Testament. That was how that was how they talked about the writers of the Old Testament. Moses, who wrote the first five books, was a prophet. Right. And then they call the historical books after that. This is what the Jews called them. They called those the former prophets. And then all of the prophets that you and I are familiar with, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Jonah, Amos, assuming you're familiar with all of those, they call those the later prophets. But the whole of the Old Testament was considered to be the prophets, spoken by the prophets. And what he tells them is this salvation, this grace that is yours, this gift of God for you, was actually described and foretold Hundreds of years before you were ever born. These prophets, as they prophesied, were searching and inquiring diligently. They were trying to figure out when and how God was going to keep his promises. Right. So he says in verse 11, that they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, right? There's a lot in there. That word Christ, it means Messiah. And so the, the prophets knew that they were forecasting what was going to happen uh, with the Messiah. They were looking forward to the Savior who would come and rescue God's people. They knew that, but what they didn't know was how. And what they didn't know was when. And what they didn't know was 
who. And so Peter says, as they're speaking and then writing down these prophecies, they're looking through their words, trying to figure out when is God going to do this? When is the Messiah going to come? How is he going to come? What is he going to do? Who is it going to be? They knew they were talking about the Messiah. They just didn't know who or when he was going to appear. And it says, Peter says, it was revealed to them. We don't know how it was revealed to them, but it was revealed to them that they were serving not just themselves, not just their own generation, but future generations. They serve not themselves. Verse 12, it was revealed to them they were serving not themselves, but you. So here's what we do with that. What, one of the reasons that Peter wants us, one of the things I think that Peter wants us to understand is this. What God is doing in and through Jesus is not a new thing. Christianity is not a new religion on the world scene that emerged in first century A.D. Now, that may be the label it has right now. But actually, Christianity is just the fulfillment of what God began doing all the way back in the Old Testament. Right? It's one solid story. It's not something new. We would say that in the Old Testament, God makes his promises. And in the New Testament, God keeps those promises. As one of my professors would say, uh, the New Testament is just the answer key to the Old Testament. Right? I mean, you can read the New Testament and understand who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. But if you don't have the Old Testament... You, all you've got is the answer key. You don't even know what questions are being asked, right? And so they, they go together. And so what that tells us is that we don't need to pit the Old Testament against the New Testament, right? It's, it's not uncommon to hear people say, well, yeah, I mean, that, the, the God of... We, we can talk about the Bible sometimes like it has a split personality disorder, right? That the Old Testament, that the God of the Bible in the Old Testament is this vengeful, angry, wrathful God... And that the God of the New Testament is, you know, all mercy and grace and love. And what we do when we do that is we ignore some pretty key parts of both. For instance, when God reveals his character to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, he describes himself as the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's Old Testament. And then for those who would say, well, I mean, New Testament, right? I mean, that's, that's all love and, you know, we kind of speak of Jesus like he's a divine hippie. Uh, right? It's all grace, peace, and love. There's no judgment or wrath there. Um, Jesus, Jesus talked of hell more than anything else. Jesus spoke of judgment regularly. Uh, in Acts chapter, we might say, well, okay, but, you know, God doesn't strike anybody dead in the New Testament. No, he does. In Acts chapter 5, um, that happens, Right? And have you read uh, the book of Revelation? Right? There's a lot of judgment there. Right? So we don't need to pit the old against the new. It's not, it's not two different gods telling two different stories. It's, it's one complete story of how God comes to rescue his ruined and sinful people. Right? That's, that the whole Bible fits together. It's not as if Jesus is plan B because plan A with Israel didn't work out. There is no plan B. It's, all, it's, it's always been about Jesus. Right? It's why we, um, 
Well, two, two resources that I would recommend to you, both of them I think you've heard about before, but uh, one we love is the Jesus Storybook Bible, written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Look, I, like these, are, these are written for children, but grab one even if you're not uh, a child. These are, these are wonderful for understanding the whole story of the Bible. So you have the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, and then Kevin DeYoung's The Biggest Story, and actually, out on the resource table, we have some uh, miniature versions of this that you can take home, some sample chapters uh, as you prepare for Easter. Um, but what I love about both of those books is they point out that the Bible is one complete story pointing to Jesus from beginning to end. And look at, did you notice uh, what sits at the heart of that story? What were the prophets trying to figure out? Look in verse 11. It says they were inquiring about what person or time the Spirit was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's the gospel. The death, excuse me, the humiliation, the death, the resurrection, the exaltation, right? The sufferings and the glories of Jesus predicted in the Old Testament. And who was it that predicted them? The Spirit of Christ. Now, who is it that empowers the witnesses of the good news? We'll look in verse 12. He says, The things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, by whom? The Holy Spirit. The same author is at work in both, in the Old Testament prophets and in the New Testament evangelists, the New Testament apostles, right? Uh, it's the same Spirit. It's the same Author, same person, one author, one story. It's why we use the Sunday school curriculum that we do for our elementary school kids. Right? Uh, it, takes, it takes your children all the way through the Bible twice. Right? If, they, if, you're, if your children enter our Sunday school class at kindergarten and leave it at sixth grade, they ideally would have gone through the entire Bible twice, Old and New Testament. But, but what makes the curriculum we use special is, is that it doesn't just tell stories, right? It doesn't approach the Bible, especially the Old Testament, as just a bunch of moral fairy tales, as fables with, with character lessons. No, it points forward to Jesus, right? It, it reminds us that, for instance, the story of David and Goliath is not a story about you needing to take courage and face your giants, that's not, what about, that's not what David's about, right? God's people are on the sidelines afraid of the giant. They're quaking in their boots and they refuse to go into battle. They're oppressed by their enemies and they don't know what to do. So they need a champion to come onto the field of battle. One who is full of faith and zeal for God's glory and risk his own life to defeat the enemy of his people. Does that sound familiar? The story of Joseph, if you're familiar with that story... It's not, it's not about making the best of a bad situation, even when your family doesn't like you. Right? It's a story about a son who is rejected by his family, unwanted by his brothers, cast out, humiliated, enslaved. But then God exalts him. And what does he do with the power that God gives him? He saves the very ones who cast him out. Sound familiar? 
As Sally Lloyd-Jones says, every story whispers his name. The whole Bible is about what Jesus has done. The Old Testament points forward. The New Testament points backward. Right? The gospel makes sense of the Bible. But how does that connect then? Why? why? That's, a, that's a beautiful truth. And it interprets everything that we read. But how does that connect to what Peter is saying? How, remember, Peter is wanting to encourage people who have been marginalized by their neighbors because of their faith in Jesus. They're, they're wondering if they've done something wrong. Have they been forgotten by God? Have they been, are they being neglected by God? Right, because that's that's usually what we think, right? When we face suffering, when 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 other people oppose us or marginalize us, we don't respond with joy. We typically respond with, "What have I done wrong? What what has happened to me? Am I? I don't even know where we get this phrase from, but am I outside of God's will?" And Peter reminds them of this truth, so that they will remember. Brother, sister, there's no such thing. You're right where you belong. You are a part of this larger story. The story that God has been telling from Genesis 1. Christian, you are a part of that story. You are a part of what God is doing. And so what you are going through right now is not a surprise or a mystery to God. In fact, it's par for the course. And... Peter is saying, you're actually in a better position than any of the Old Testament prophets. They, they were looking forward through the mist and shadows trying to figure out what, what this was all about. On this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb, we can look back and see the whole thing. And say, oh, this is what God was up to. This is the fulfillment of God's work. We have received the very thing that they were looking forward to. Hebrews 11 makes this point. It's a, it's a beautiful chapter. It's often called the heroes of the faith, though, though interestingly, because uh, what, what Hebrews 11 does is it walks through some of these different Old Testament characters and shows how they walked by faith. And we call them heroes, but if you look at their lives, they're really not all that heroic. They're a lot like you and me. They do some things right, and they do a lot of things wrong. But the difference, right, is that they walk by faith in God's promises. And so this is the point that Hebrews 11 is making. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. This is verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. And he goes through and he talks about creation and Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. And then he says this in verse 13. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Exiles, that same word that Peter uses at the beginning of his letter. They're exiles, strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. 
that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What are we so afraid of? What are we angry about? We're angry about the loss of our culture. I'm speaking to Christians and those who would label themselves conservatives. That may not be you this morning. But, for that, but if that is you, what, what is it that we're so stirred up by? What is it that we're afraid of? That we're going to lose our country? That we're going to lose our culture? That we're going to lose our place, our voice, our influence? Y'all, there's nothing to lose. If we experience loss, it's really nothing new. That, in fact, has been what God's people have endured as people of promise for millennia. They've always looked forward. We've always been strangers and exiles. In fact, maintaining the place in the center of culture, holding the position of authority and power, that's the oddity. The fact that our, that, that our, Christian, that our, that our nation could ever distinctly be called Christian in some sense, that's the oddity. Far more often, the church, the people of God, have been on the margins. In fact, that is where we flourish, is on the margins. We're part of a larger story. And the second thing, the second way that the gospel helps us understand our lives is that suffering as a stranger in an exile is nothing new. Listen to, listen to what he says a little bit further in Hebrews 11, verse 32. What more shall I say? After he goes through some more Old Testament people, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, the prostitute. There's a hero for you. Verse 32. What more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Glories. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in the dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Sufferings and glories, that's a part of the life of faith. In fact, the path of faith goes down through suffering into glory. That's what Hebrews 11 teaches us. That's what First Peter is saying. So Christian, speaking to Christians this morning, 
We should not be caught off guard by suffering. It is a part of our heritage. It is a part of what it means to be an exile on earth. It is a part of what it means to wear God's name and be his son or daughter. We clamor for power and prestige and influence. And we miss that Jesus had all of those things. And he gave them up. So that he could redeem his people. In fact, not only are we in a better position than the prophets and Old Testament heroes. We're in such a great position, Peter says, that even the angels of heaven. Long to look into what God is doing. They love staring from the sidelines and saying, look at what God is doing here. Look at how God is keeping his promises. Isn't it amazing So we're not only privileged historically, we're privileged cosmically. We're worried about losing a position that we can't lose. Even if if we lose everything, we're in a better place than anyone has ever been in history this side of the cross. That's what Peter is saying. We're worried that we're going to lose, and Peter says... No, you have a place in God's story. You have a privileged position in history and even in the universe. And so what should we do? Well, we already sang it. We should walk by faith and not by sight. We should not give up. We should not cave to social pressure. We shouldn't turn back. And say, this road is going nowhere. In fact, suffering is the way to glory. Death is the way to life. Look again at verse 11. This is the third reason how the gospel makes sense of our lives. When it predicts the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories... We see that when Christians are misunderstood and marginalized and mistreated, they're simply following in the footsteps of Jesus. This is, this is the path of Jesus. This is the road that Jesus walked. And this means that, that the invitation to the gospel is, is really upside down. That, that, the way, that the way to life in God's kingdom is Upside down to us. We, we want to go up into glory. But the Bible repeatedly says that the way up is actually down. Down into death and up into life. And so this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, you have an offer of two ways of living. Two roads that you can take. The first road is the one that just about everybody understands. It's the road, it's the normal way of life. It's offered by everyone, everywhere. And it says, get what you can while you can. It promises glory, but it's temporary glory. If you believe the Bible... 
It's temporary glory and then eternal suffering. If you don't believe the Bible, then it's temporary glory and then nothing. But either way, the offer of this path is temporary glory. The other path, the Jesus path, is temporary suffering that leads to eternal glory. It's the road that Jesus took. It's the road that all of the people who followed Jesus have taken. And that's the offer before you this morning. One looks right and one looks upside down. But when we see things from Peter's perspective, actually this one is upside down and this one is right side up. Which path are you on? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Peter. Thank you for all of the voices in Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit to point us forward in hope, to remind us of our hope, to remind us of the glory that is stored up for us in Christ. God, I pray that you would give us a better vision, a better perspective, so that we would know how to live here and now while we wait for the glory that is to come. Lord, and for those who do not yet know you, I pray that that you would be attractive, that the beauty of what you offer would far outstrip, would outshine anything that we could have this side of eternity. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.